Welcome to a special K2 Integrity podcast. Today, I visit with Gabe Hidalgo. Gabe is a managing director at K2 Integrity with 20 years experience in legal, regulatory compliance, and AML work. He works with fintech companies, broker-dealers, and money services entities. He's a recognized subject matter expert in cryptocurrency and digital assets and helps clients navigate and mitigate Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering compliance risks as they strive to keep up with the latest developments. This episode, we take a deep dive into cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Dogecoin, and the like, the role of celebrities such as Elon Musk. We also take a look at the new AML law of 2020 and what that means for cryptocurrencies. We take a look at the new regulatory or the current regulatory environment, and then we take a look down the road as to where regulators may be going and the Securities and Exchange Commission may be doing on the regulatory side. It's a fascinating interview of a current topic that I know every compliance practitioner will want to listen to. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today I have with me Gabe Hidalgo. Gabe's with K2 Integrity, and we're going to take an exploration into the land of Elon Musk, cryptocurrency, NFTs, and other things that compliance officers don't think about enough. So, Gabe, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it. Gabe, could you tell us a little bit about your professional background? Sure. Um, I have a combined over 22 years uh, legal and compliance background, Um, in particular, AML compliance. Um, I've been a regulator with the Federal Reserve Bank of New York for almost four years. My crypto experience goes back uh, since 2011, initially as an enthusiast after reading the Bitcoin white paper uh, and then becoming the global head of compliance um, for ITBIT, which is now Paxos, when a uh, one of the regulated uh, U.S. exchanges in the U.S. In addition to that, I was also the head of, uh, I was the chief compliance officer for Noble Bank International, which was a challenger bank that offered uh, cryptocurrency banking services to a lot of the startup uh, fintech companies out there. Uh, right now, I am the managing director at uh, K2 Integrity, and I co-head along with my my uh, uh, colleague Gail Fuller, the fintech and crypto practice at K2. And basically what we do is we help our clients either create, implement, or um, or update their compliance program, uh, specifically in the area of fintech and uh, virtual asset service providers or cryptocurrency companies. Gabe, I rarely get to do current events with uh, my friends at K2 Integrity, but we're going to do as close as we can because... Uh, Elon Musk was on Saturday Night Live this weekend, and he, of course, uh, was controversial, but he was controversial in almost a securities law kind of way. So I wanted to maybe talk about that a little bit as a broader discussion around his role in cryptocurrency, his role in Dogecoin. Uh, Does he need additional regulation on him from the securities law perspective and uh, general speculations of all things Elon? Um, but he went on uh, Saturday Night Live. He had an opening se- sequence. He told his mother she was getting Dogecoin for Mother's Day, which she said she did not want. But then the more interesting one was in uh, the news segment, he played a business analyst 
when uh, asked about Dogecoin, said it was, quote, a hustle, end quote. Uh, now, I normally take the news on Saturday Night Live as somewhat of a parody, but apparently the backers of Dogecoin did not, and the company lost almost a third of its value overnight, and it was so volatile today that even Robinhood had to stop trading on it. So what are we to make of Musk, his investments in cryptocurrency? Uh, originally, he was going to take Dogecoin to the moon, um, but then he makes a Saturday Night Live appearance. Uh, where, where do we begin to unpack all of that from a legal perspective? Just as an aside, my concentration overall is AML compliance uh, and BSA, but I'll take a stab at this as well. Uh, in regards to Dogecoin and the way that it's been presented by Elon Musk and others, I mean, when you look at the origins of how Dogecoin came about, it was really created as what I would call a cultural phenomenon. It was based on a meme of a, a dog, the Doge, and um, then that kind of expanded. Typically, when you look at the underlying value of a cryptocurrency, you look to see what the use cases for a coin are. Uh, I believe for Dogecoin, it's more for trading and basically as a store of value. So similar to what you would expect with Bitcoin. Uh, the difference here with Dogecoin is it's always been an alternative cryptocurrency. It's never been one of the cryptocurrencies that's been focused on as one of the main cryptocurrencies. The main ones tend to be like Bitcoin, uh, Ether, uh, Litecoin, Ripple, some of the larger uh, um cryptocurrencies. With Dogecoin, what happened uh, with Elon Musk is, as with a lot of people who are considered influencers or public uh, people with public profiles, you know, a lot of people hang on their every word. And so what occurs is if someone accidentally or sometimes even on purpose pitches something, uh, whether it's through Twitter or some other communications mean, a lot of people will then tend to invest in that. From a securities perspective, you have to be careful in that you're not providing investment advice uh, when you're not a qualified investment advisor. Uh, and that's where you'll see a lot of people say things like, I'm not providing investment advice as they're going to mention something that could be considered investment advice to protect themselves. Uh, as far as Elon Musk's Saturday Night Live appearance, I think you, everyone has to take that with a grain of salt. It's very much a parody. The jokes on there basically indicate that it's in, it done as a parody. Uh, and no matter what Elon Musk said in SNL, I would hope most people would not pay much attention in regards to anything that would advocate the investment or the selling of assets based on any statements he made. Now, that being said, Elon Musk does, ha does have a lot of influence. And therefore, as we've seen before, uh, when he made statements on Twitter in regards to Tesla, his words carry weight especially with investors. And that's why, for example, I believe Doge, Dogecoin was at 66 cents a coin and now it's at 46 cents. So you've had 20 cents drop, which is huge for the specific asset. Uh, but again, from an SNL perspective, it's understood to be a parody and I would hope that people were not hinging on some sort of investment signal from SNL. Uh, but generally speaking, public figures do have to be very careful when they advocate for specific things, knowing that other people may be relying on that. And that's where investment, you know, listening to a, re you know, a, a registered investment advisor is more important than listen to someone who happens to say a good word about whatever they think is a good investment, but they're not really giving investment advice. 
Cryptocurrencies have been one of the topics, I think, most in the forefront of Q1 of this year. And we're seeing uh, commentary really from two groups, both consumers and institutions. I was wondering if you might be able to talk a little bit about kind of where is cryptocurrency now? Is it moving towards a, a place of uh, perhaps more regulation or greater acceptability, both as an asset and as a currency? So whenever there is a new technology that, that comes about, there's always uh, a little bit of hesitation as to whether or not it should be adopted as the controlling technology. We've seen that time and time again. For An easy example of this is when uh, in the music sector, when you moved away from vinyl records to compact discs and everybody thought this was it, the yeah, end all be all. And now the vast majority of the music that we listen to is streamed. It's a digital format. Technology evolves. Uh, personally, I believe cryptocurrency, digital assets, virtual assets are the next evolution of currency. Uh, they allow for a greater movement. It allows for greater traceability of the asset. Uh, it allows for the um, almost frictionless movement of funds from one person to another. I think the, when you look at where digital currency or virtual assets are heading, you can see the big pushes by central banks all over the world trying to understand how they can create a central bank digital currency. Um, and you can also see that in the adoption from a mainstream perspective, not only from consumers, but also from institutions. From a consumer perspective, when you look at digital currency, you look at how does it affect them? Some people are buying, are buying it, trading it, selling it um, as an investment vehicle. They've seen how the growth of a Bitcoin has gone from you know, a dollar back when it first started to $200 to a thousand. And now it's, you know, over $50,000. Um, they look at it as their opportunity to invest in something similar to technology stocks uh, back in the late 1990s, early 2000s. If you had invested in Dell and held on to that right now, you would, you know, you would have a lot from an asset perspective, something that's worth a lot. Same thing with Apple stocks. So they're looking at this as the next big thing to invest in. From a use case perspective, merchants are looking at Bitcoin and other virtual assets as potentially another route for them to conduct sales using another asset. Um, when you have PayPal and other merchant facilitators adopting cryptocurrency as another form of payment, it allows for people to see that it's not just a investment vehicle, but can actually be used as a form of currency. From an institutional perspective, Obviously, the groundswell of support for cryptocurrencies is causing institutions to look closely at it and seeing whether or not for their customers, for the investors under these institutions, whether or not it's something that they want to offer their institutions as a differentiator compared to their peers. Obviously, sometimes it pays to be the first mover. Sometimes it doesn't. And that's why you're seeing right now a lot of institutions moving into this asset class and being able and, and, and offering it to their clients as in another asset class to invest in. Now, as with any asset class, you have to be able to look at the risks. Cryptocurrency is very volatile. Uh, obviously, there's a different type of cryptocurrency called stable coins, which is pegged to the fiat value of whether it's a dollar or pound sterling. It's pegged to something. Cryptocurrencies are pegged to, for the most part, are pegged to uh, the value that a market's willing to pay for them. And that's something that I think people need to realize. Institutions realize it, obviously, because they've seen other things that are 
pegged to whatever the market's willing to pay for them. But in the case of cryptocurrencies, we have to be really careful because while today the value of that Bitcoin may be over $50,000, it could slide back and be in the $20,000 range, $10,000 range or something else. Um, and so from an institutional perspective, I think a lot of institutions had been cautious in this asset class and they're not diving in because they want to make sure that those who are part of the institution, their clients are protected. But from a consumer standpoint, you know, whenever something is new and novel and great, uh, similar to like NFTs, and I know we're going to talk about that, people want to dive into it. They want to experience it. I would caution against putting everything you have into it. Uh, my rule of thumb is always if you can't lose it, then you may not want to invest that amount of money into it um, because you don't want to put your rent or your mortgage payment or something like that into a volatile asset class that could go up one day and then be dead back down the next day. Well, that really brings up the next topic, which is NFTs or non-fungible tokens. I have to confess, this is the one that befuddles me even more than cryptocurrency and Bitcoin. Uh, even blockchain, I think I understand better than an M NFT. So perhaps you give me some guidance on what an NFT is along with the uh, audience and then talk about wh why is uh, the growth been so great and what's the significance? So uh, non-fungible tokens, NFTs, are basically digital representations of like, something unique uh, that's being offered and, is, and the record of ownership is kept on the blockchain. So one of the big... NFTs that's been out there are these things called pop shots, um, which are being sold by uh, the National Basketball Association. So you can literally take the digital ownership of a spectacular dunk that was by your favorite um, basketball player and own it. And you will be the sole owner of that specific digital representation of that highlight. It doesn't mean that no one else will ever be able to see that highlight. You can still go to YouTube and some of the other media um, platforms to see it but you will be the sole owner of that digital representation. Um, the way I explained it to my daughter, uh, who's in college right now, when she asked me about it was, she used to collect Pokemon cards. And Pokemon cards, uh, you know, they come in packs and there's certain ones that are super rare. Um, NFTs are like that Pokemon card, but a digital representation. Uh, and so whether it's art that's being digitized and the ownership of that is becoming an NFT or um, something else that they also digitized was something called Crypto Kitties, where you can trade these digital animated kittens or, or little animals on the digital blockchain. And the more unique they were, the more they were worth. And again, like anything else, the marketplace is really the one who decides the value of it. And so therefore, um, there was recently a sale of an NFT from a digital artist. I think his name was Beeple. Uh, and he, he sold it for... $800,000, I think, or something. Again, it's whatever the marketplace is really willing to pay for it. Uh, from a compliance standpoint, what we're looking at from an NFT perspective is, is there the capture of information from the buyer and the seller when these NFTs are bought and sold to facilitate the tracking of the movement of funds for these assets? Because ultimately, regardless of whether something is unique or not, it's the tracking of the assets and the value that's paid for that asset that really helps in tracking, for example, illicit flows of funds that may be flowing in or out of a marketplace. Now, that's not to say that NFTs right now are 
you know, inundated with illicit flow of funds. But we can all imagine a place where the NFT marketplace is used as a place to move illicit funds by someone paying a ridiculous amount of money for a digital representation of something when the market doesn't support that price. Um, and that's only to be able to move that uh, anonymously or pseudo-anonymously on these types of marketplaces, especially when they don't collect um, know your customer information. That being said, from a compliance standpoint, um, there's more to be done in this area. Uh, but, you know, we always, in our practice, we always look to those marketplaces and advocate that there should be controls in place so that your marketplace does not become known as the marketplace for illicit uh, fund movement, um, you know, within the United States or, or globally. Change the focus just a little bit to the current or future regulatory climate. I really can't think of a time where uh, the new a new administration coming in is faced with so many unique and new challenges. And Gary Gensler uh, really will be on the forefront of many of those uh, for the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, so maybe we could start with uh, Bit uh, Bitcoin and how you think the SEC may look at it as an alternative currency, an asset class, or perhaps something else. So I think the even before we get to that point, the one thing that I think the industry is looking for is regulatory clarity. In many other jurisdictions, they've set up uh, regulatory sandboxes for newly formed or existing companies to basically be able to operate within that regulatory sandbox uh, to get feedback from the regulators, to be able to develop new uh, programs and new systems, uh, new products. In the United States, uh, we recently um, had this huge influx of people and interest of cryptocurrency over the last few years. But the one thing that has not changed in a lot of ways is the regulatory clarity. Um, whether it's a security or not, whether it's a currency or, or not, uh, these are questions that are still out there. And I applaud Gary Gensler uh, with his statement saying that you do need regulation around these products because I do believe that the more clear uh, the government is in regards to how they regulate these products, the better it is for our business climate overall. And it allows for regulatory clarity so that when someone's developing a product or service, they're not thinking that they develop it and all of a sudden they, they either cannot have it operate in the United States or they can't seek investment in the United States because of the regulatory you know, vagueness. From an SEC perspective, they, you know, Gary Gensler is seen as an advocate for crypto. I think he's an ally of crypto. Hopefully what he'll do is he'll put in place the mechanisms by which it'll be uh, easier to determine whether or not a crypto asset is a security or not, as well as well, beyond Gary Gensler, the government will be able to assign who uh, regulates the different forms of crypto assets that are out there so that not only is the SEC regulating what is deemed to be securities from a crypto perspective, but virtual currency exchanges that are currently out there have clear, uh, <clears throat> clear regulatory guidance not just at the state level, but at the federal level in regards to who will oversee them federally. Um, I'm always a, a big proponent on regulatory clarity because I do think it helps from a business perspective. Uh, but I do think that that would bring it a long way from where we are now, where everyone's still trying to guess whether or not specific 
crypto assets will be regulated as securities or not. That's a big step. And therefore, I do applaud Gary Glenser for speaking out and saying we do need regulations, but I think we still need more. We need clarity. We need a specific method by which um, firms can adjudicate whether or not they'll fall under specific regulators. Um, and I think that that's, that's really going to help business as a whole in this particular area in the United States versus what we're seeing overseas where, you know, they're moving ahead and they're allowing more of these companies to operate in these regulatory sandboxes where they know they're not going to be penalized uh, because they misinterpreted what they thought um, would be the coverage from a regulatory perspective. Um, and I think that that's really what we, we need here in the U.S. How do you see the IRS coming down on this, either taxing this as an asset or working with it as a currency? So I think from an IRS perspective, they've been pretty clear on the way they want to look at this. And that's really from an asset perspective. Um, I think that they, this has been clear for a few years now. Um, in fact, at the I remember in the latest uh, tax form when my wife and I filed our taxes, there was a specific area where you can indicate whether or not you've invested in cryptocurrency, uh, I believe, in the past year. They are going to go back, and I'm sure they're, they're going back to all the exchanges that are regulated here in the U.S., and they're going to look for people who have bought cryptocurrency and have sold cryptocurrency. Uh, the basis by which you get taxed on is well, the price at which you purchase the cryptocurrency and then obviously the profit or loss when you sell. I think it's at this point, at least for me, it's pretty clear from a cryptocurrency perspective that any profits you make from the buying or selling, uh, well, from the ultimate selling of the cryptocurrency is going to be taxed. Um, I don't really see a sea change from the IRS shifting from that investment view to a crypto to a true uh what i would call a currency perspective where it's like a, a fiat dollar the only place where i would see something like that occur would be something like a central bank denominated uh, a central bank digital currency where the digital representation of the fiat is being used in order to purchase to make to pay your bills purchase uh, products and services that may occur with Bitcoin, but the but the fact remains that when you have one Bitcoin that's denominated at 50 times what the value is for a fiat dollar, that's going to look more like a an asset and less like an actual currency. Um, again, that may change, uh, but I think right now the IRS is pretty clear that they look at it as an asset uh, based on the value of it, based on how it's being used. Uh, if Bitcoin at some point were to be used as a true currency and it's being used to purchase materials, to purchase products and services, to pay for goods, to pay for people's time on a more wide mainstream uh, way, maybe that would change. Uh, but I think at the current, the way we stand right now, it's, it is being looked at as an asset. And I think it's being treated as an asset. Perhaps now I could turn uh, to looking down the road. You really, uh, I thought, explained it as well as it, I've heard it on not simply regulatory guidance, but regulatory clarity. And what do you see of the roles of uh, either financial institutions or public companies in helping drive a dialogue with the government around uh, regulatory clarity? Is that an ongoing dialogue? Is that hopefully not a diktat from the government? How, how do you see that working? The, well, there's always been a back and forth between the business side or industry and the government. Uh, whenever the government proposes a new, role, a, a new rule of law, 
they typically open the the um, to the floor to public comment, and the whatever the industry is that will be impacted typically has the ability to speak to the government through uh, their opinions, their letters, everything else. In the financial institutional space, uh, the financial clarity, the regulatory clarity has been asked for by the players in the space. The virtual asset service providers have been some of the most vocal advocates for having regulatory clarity uh, in, what, in knowing who they're going to be regulated by, what rules will apply to them, and long-term having the government support in basically um, incubating this new type of business. Now, if the U.S. continues to innovate, if it continues to expand its regulatory oversight, if it provides clarity uh, to these businesses, I think there will be more and more development onshore here in the U.S. If there are delays in that process, then I do think that these companies are going to go seek other places where there is regulatory clarity to develop and possibly prosper with these businesses that they're building. Um, the one thing that we've always prided ourselves in is becoming a, a engine for innovation here in the United States. We've done it time and time again in many different industries. What we do need though, is we do need clarity from the government in regards to how they wanna regulate specific types of virtual assets so that someone who's developing a novel approach to the way that asset is being moved, created, implemented, used, can then rely on that clarity to further develop their products without fear of the product not being viable in the United States because it's gonna be banned or it's not gonna be covered or it's gonna to be too strictly controlled to be profitable. Now, personally, I'm a fan of regulation. But I do understand from a business standpoint that you do need clarity and you need some business freedom to be able to operate uh, within this particular industry. And therefore, from a U.S. perspective, I think we will be evolving the regulatory landscape to provide more clarity, to provide more definitions that can be relied on when you're trying to figure out who it is that's going to be regulating you, what are the rules from that regulation, and how you carry forth the implementation of your compliance programs in regards to those rules. If you put those three things together, I think the US can be the leader in this area. Uh, but now you see other jurisdictions like Singapore that are providing opportunities for a lot of startups and a lot of companies in this space because they have the regulatory sandbox that allows these companies to freely develop these products and services, knowing that the government of Singapore is not gonna crack down on them uh, as long as you know they're aware of what the baseline regulations are. We need that. We've, we're starting down that path. There have been calls to that path. I think Gary Gensler being, uh, you know, being the head of the SEC, I think is a great move for this industry. But I do think, um, and it's, it's, you know, we've been very active this way. Industry and government need to speak to each other. That's currently occurring. It needs to continue to occur. The development of the regulations should be um, taken with industry input because they're the ones developing the products. They're probably in the best position to understand a lot of how the products work. Uh, and together, I think government and industry can come together to form a reasonable framework that will allow <clears throat> that will allow innovation 
but at the same time mitigate risks that may arise from that technology. I think that's the partnership that we we have currently, and I think hopefully it will continue. Well, Gabe, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but this has been a fascinating exploration. Uh, I hope that uh, perhaps we can continue the conversation going forward. Oh, yeah, definitely. At any time, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to this special K2 Integrity-sponsored podcast featuring Gabe Hidalgo, where we took a look at cryptocurrency, their current regulatory environment, and where it's going in the future. For more information on Hidalgo or K2 Integrity, check out their website, www.k2integrity.com. This podcast has been a special production of the Compliance Podcast Network.